This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, let's talk about the seasons of life, not just the seasons of life. Philip Yancey did that five or six weeks ago when he was here, but let's talk about, in light of this series, the season of Advent, the idea of in my end is my beginning, sacred endings. Let's talk about how we transition, especially how we move from one season to the next. A scripture, Ecclesiastes 3, look at it on the screen. Ecclesiastes 3, uh, first eight verses. You've read this before, you've seen it on gift cards, it was the, uh, the sermon that was preached at your baculart, but it's a wonderful passage. Look at it with me. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. Everything has a season. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up or harvest what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and there's a time to dance. A time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. There's a time to tear and there's a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Seasons of life. We are a people of irony, Christians. Um, Most major religions, to some degree, have a sense of this paradox or this tension, this thing called irony in them. Ours is incredibly clear. We view Christians... We view the most tragic death the universe has ever experienced, the death of the Son of God, the death of Jesus. We view that death as possessing actually the seeds of our greatest hope. In what some have described as the worst thing that's ever happened in the universe, there is a sense of the best thing that will ever happen in the universe. The ultimate solidarity with man the ultimate solidarity of God come into human existence, suffering and dying with us. The essential message of Christianity is this, and it is complex and yet it's simple, but if I were to describe the essential message of Christianity, I would say that at the base of that message is a very hope-filled message. A very hope-freighted message that all of this that we see has been done at the intention of God. This is not a mistake. God did all of this with great intentionality. God is creator. God created with intention. And when God created with intention, God created out of his own image. Some say that God created ex, the Latin, ex nihilo, or out of nothing. Well, That's true in the sense that God did not use matter to create. God created matter out of nothing. But God didn't create out of nothing. God created out of God's self. Uh, Employing Latin again, the church has spoke for years about the imago Dei. You hear the image of God. All of this is created out of the image of God, the divine essence. And In doing so, when God created the universe and infused it with his essence, he was securing, he was vouchsafing the ultimate victory of God and the ultimate benefit and victory of the universe. Our story is a story that says that God shared space with other than himself. You, you know what you are? You are many things, but one of the things you are is you are God's decision to not be alone. You are God's decision to share space with another, and you're that other. God, with great intentionality, our story goes, shared life with the created order. 
God brought us into being, made us in his image, infused all of the universe with his essence. Some religions are pantheistic, pan, all, theistic, uh, that having to do with God. Everything is God, some people say. We are, as Christians, panentheistic. There's a little E-N between the pan and the uh, theos, and that N says that God is not everything, but God is in everything. God is infused in all of creation. So, therefore, creation, we exist in relation to our creator. We exist, that word itself, exist, ek, sustere, sustere, to sustain or to be. Ek means out of, the old Greek prefix. To exist means that we stand out from something. Now, in, in that sense, God doesn't exist. Because God is the ground of all being. If you ever want to mess with one of your atheist friends, say, I don't believe God exists either. In the technical sense of that word, God doesn't stand bow out from something. God is the something. We exist. We jute out from. We exist in relationship to God, but God simply is. That's why back at the burning bush, Abraham, or Moses said, what, we, what am I going to say? Who sent me? God said, just tell him I am that I am. I'm not the one who exists. I'm not the one who was born. Nina and I were lying. I was lying down with her the other night when she was going to sleep, and she was deeply troubled because it finally occurred to her that God's the source of everything, but who's the source of God? Anybody cross that bridge with your kid? Where did God come from? And you explain to them, well, God's always been here. And their brow, or their brow furrows, and they say, but where did God come from? Well, God didn't come from anywhere. Back before anybody came from anything, there was God. And then you go back before that, and there was God. You get that? And she said, no, I don't get that at all. And the more I thought about it, the longer I explained, Gene, the more I realized I didn't get it either. But we believe there's a creator, and we, we exist. We all feel this tension that we came from something bigger than us, and we're going to something bigger than us. And in the meantime, there's this sense of connectedness and responsibility to that something. Humankind have this tension, this sense in them that I've come from somewhere, going to somewhere, and somehow I sense that I am in relationship to something bigger than me. Christianity certainly espouses that idea. We come from God John 1, 3, all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made. Nothing. We come from God. Acts 17, 28, we're in God. I, I love this. When Paul was preaching to the philosophers at Mars Hill, he didn't, you know, he didn't quote Isaiah or pick up a verse from Deuteronomy. He used their text. When you're sharing your faith with someone from another world, another religion, you don't have to use your text. Find something in their text. Our text isn't the only one that said something true. Paul looked at them and said, like your poets say. He quoted their scripture. He said, it's like your poets say. In him we live, and we breathe, and we have our very being. We came from him, we're in him, and we're going to him. And, and even in this process of being in him, there's a sense of longing. I love Romans 8. Let me read a portion of Romans 8 to you from Eugene Peterson's message, which is more commentary than translation, but it's a good commentary. Listen to this from Romans 8. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. Now, that automatically gets a little touchy for me because I grew up in a little denomination. We were so puritanical, we never said pregnant. Pregnant was the P word. No kidding. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. No, we didn't say, we said in a family way. Anybody ever heard that? E expecting. I remember the youth director in section nine, our little section of 12 churches, he came from South Carolina, which was a much more liberal state than Arkansas. And, he came, and Mike, he said pregnant in the pulpit over at Pigott, Arkansas at a youth rally. And he had to step down from his post, had to take it. We, we put him through a season of restoration, I guess. <laughs> For saying pregnant. Well, that was that had nothing to do with y'all. I just had to get over that and have that liberating moment. That's the first time I've ever said pregnant in the pulpit. So, 
All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. A pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain. Can anybody see difficult times of pain in our world? The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. I love this. Listen. But those birth pangs are not only around us, they are within us. We are one with this pregnant creation in its birth pangs. Listen. The Spirit of God stirs within us like a baby in the womb. The Spirit of God is arousing us within, and we're also feeling the birth pangs. That's what you feel every time you read the paper, read online, or watch the news, and you see one more atrocity. And like pleurisy and pregnancy combined, the pains shoot through you, and you know this is a world not fully made right. We're feeling the birth pangs. That's why waiting, listen to this, that's why waiting does not diminish us, think, make us smaller. Waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We have, some, we have 10 or 12 pregnant mothers right now who know that's the truth. Time is not making you any smaller, is it? Is that bad to say? Should I not get on that? Uh, let me look for another analogy pretty quickly here. Waiting diminishes us no more than it diminishes a pregnant mother. <laughs> like her, we are all enlarged in the waiting. The longer we wait, the larger we become. And the more joyful our expectancy. Longing. A sense of relatedness to the Creator that Paul described as hope. Hope that is seen as not hope, but rooted in our faith as an expectancy that we will be face to face. Our expectancy in Christianity is a creation fully grown. Our expectation, our hope in Christianity is not only a sense of a redeemed human family, but our expectancy is much bigger than that. Our expectancy is of a world, of a creation, of a universe fully mature. This was the vision of Israel's prophets all the way back, hundreds of years before Christ. They began to see that there was a kingdom coming that was bigger than the kingdom of David. There was a kingdom coming where swords would be bit, beaten into plowshares. For not only would Israel not be subjugated, but Israel wouldn't subjugate. But God would be king, and the lion would lie down with the lamb, and the child would play around the hole where the poisonous snake lives, and they would be safe. This was the vision, not only of the central Israel, central prophets, but this was the message of Jesus. Incessantly, Jesus was always talking about the kingdom of God, and he was even saying, you shouldn't look for it always out there and up there. You should look inside because seeds of that kingdom are inside of you right now. He'd pull a little child into his lap and say, this is the kingdom. You want the kingdom? Here it is. Look at this. Turn away from the news agency. Move away from the UN. Come back from the lines between the Palestinians and the Jews. And he would set a child in his lap in their midst and he would say, this is the kingdom. Our story is the story of a creation and a creator in full harmony. Now, seasons of life. Our movement toward that reality, our movement toward a harmonized universe, a universe without injustice and suffering, is a movement that happens in a time and a space continuum. And by that, let me make that more practical. Our movement toward the kingdom of God is not ethereal. It happens in the time and space continuum. It happens in bodies and in moments. It happens on Sunday mornings and in fleshly situations. We are moving toward the kingdom and we are ever moving. Our world is ever moving 
Paul said, look up and what you see happening around us is happening in us. And what we see around us is a universe that's ever moving. Nothing in the universe, nothing in us is ever standing still. Our corner of the universe, listen, our corner of the universe, this little solar system that revolves around a medium-sized sun and a medium-sized galaxy, this little planet that we call Earth, the movement of Earth paints a very vivid picture of what the Apostle Paul described as pregnancy. The movement of the planet Earth in relationship with its moon and its sun and the other planets, the movement of, in, of the planet Earth in relationship even to its own self is a vivid picture of what Paul described as birth pangs, maturation, groaning, as our little planet moves continuously, never stopping, as it moves continuously through our solar system. Listen, not just moving in a linear fashion, but moving in multiforms. It's, it's tilting, it's rotating, and it's spinning. It's repeating cycles, do this tilt and spin and rotation. It, it enjoys life in cycles, repeating cycles of years and months, of days and nights, of summers and winters. And as Paul noted in Romans 8, the process that we see around us, the spinning, the rotating, the tilting, Paul said what we see in the universe around us is actually happening in us. Follow me. Our individual lives are not stationary. Our individual lives are not static, nor are our individual lives merely moving in a simple, linear fashion between here and the kingdom of God. I'd love to tell you that you start here and you move uninterrupted and simply the shortest distance between two points to there, and that's called the kingdom. But as the children of Israel learned as they left Egypt, God doesn't normally take us on the shortest point between two lines. It's a long, serendipitous journey, this journey we're on. He's taking us the way he took the Israelites along a long road. This process that we see around us is indicated inside of us as we move on this non-linear, non-interrupted line. Because our lives, listen to me, our lives are revolving and tilting and spinning in repetitive cycles of seasons. The same way the sun and the moon and the celestial bodies around us create gravitational forces that move our earth. The reason we're tilting and spinning and rotating is because there are other bodies around us and in relationship to them and their movement, gravitational forces create ebbs and tides, comings and goings, winters and summers, cold and warm. And the reality is, Paul was right when he said, we see those same things in this life. We see lives that are tilted and gravitationally affected by our own bodies, our own stories, our own experiences. Gravitational forces twist and harangue us. And not only ours, but we live in relationship to other people. Boy, wouldn't this world be easy if there weren't other people in it. My dad used to look at me and say, I don't know why everybody can't be like us. Wouldn't it be easier if everybody was just like us? But everybody's not just like us, are they? And the gravitational forces that are created through our relationality to other bodies, to other humans, with other experiences. They move us through time via mornings and noons and nights. They move us through time, through work and Sabbath, springtime plantings and autumn harvests, through pregnancies and miscarriages and births, through youth and age, through matriculations and graduations, through birth and death, we tilt and we spin and we rotate. So what is happening in our bodies? So what is happening in our lives as we move along this journey toward what is called the kingdom of God? What's happening in our souls? A young 
person sat with me just this week, late 30s. I asked them why they were there, and they said, I need to say something. And Doug, I sat as for the next hour and a half, there was no need for me to talk as they said something. I listened to the story of a life much like mine, not linear, not in a, uninterrupted. I listened to 38 years of life synopsized in an hour and a half. I listened to pain and betrayal, birth and death, abuse and rejection. I listened to beauty and goodness matched by horror and tragedy. At the end, and I watched this person as they told the story, they twisted and tilted and rotated as they stumbled even through the telling of their life. They told me secrets that day. At the end of the hour and a half, I did what I want to do. I said, what do you need from me now? And they looked at me and said, nothing. I just needed someone to hold this with me. And I felt the gravitational pull of the complexity of life. I felt Everett, after what I heard, and you can only imagine per your own story, fact is stranger than fiction. When they told me, I just want you to hold this with me, I felt like reaching down and untying my shoes, Mark, and just taking them off because that's holy ground. When somebody invites you, Mike, into their force field, and they invite you to feel those things. And we sat together a while, pretty much with silence. You say, what did you do? We felt the force and we held the story. I sat there and I thought to myself, you know what, what's happening in this room that hits me, sturm and drang, warp and woof, shock and awe, it hit me. I was, I can professionally keep a sympathetic gaze, but behind my eyes, I'm just a human being. And when the story is told, I was overwhelmed by the levels of pain, the intensity of tragedy that the person experienced. But I was even more overwhelmed to realize that this plays out billions of times over that this person stands as literally a celestial body in relationship to billions of other human beings. And this interplay of human beings is so complex and vast that I thought to myself, this, this is just a microcosm of the universe. This is a microcosm of the galaxy and the solar systems, the spinning and the tilting and the rotating. It's just a microcosm. And then as they looked into their eyes, I thought, this is no microcosm. Perhaps the large story is not the spinning heavens. Perhaps the largest story is not the shifting seismic plates. Perhaps the real story is not the shifting mountains. Perhaps the grand story is the spinning and the shifting of the soul. Perhaps the universe, J.D., is a microcosm of what happens in a human heart. And then I thought, perhaps there's no competition Maybe one doesn't have to be larger than the other. Maybe the cosmological story of a world out there and all of its shiftings and the grandeur of God's handiwork that it is, maybe it's not in competition with the divine interplay of human beings and the divine interplay of one person's own soul. Maybe one doesn't have to be larger than the other. Maybe they're all a part of the same story. Maybe they're all a part of the maturing of creation in the kingdom of God. Maybe that's why when you read the Bible, it's not all about humanity. It's about a new heaven and a new earth. We get to the end of the story, and all we're worried about in Revelation 21 and 22 is a new Stan and a, you know, a new Steve. But that's not the vision. The vision is of a world made right. I remember when Stan Jr. came to me and said, Dad, what's heaven going to be? I said, buddy, we're not just going somewhere. It's going to be a new universe. Listen, the Easter story is not a story about the immortality of the soul. We believe that long before Easter. The Easter story is about the resurrection of the body. 
Not just the resurrection of the body, but the affirmation of the material. God said it was good. He hadn't changed his mind. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And I was explaining to him, we're not just going to be disembodied spirits floating around somewhere. Easter is about the resurrection of the body. New heaven, new earth. Stan Jr. said, well, what about our son? It's going to burn out in two million years. What are we going to do then? I looked at him. I said, well, there's going to be a new son. And he looked at me and he said, well, will that son burn out? And I said, no, no, no. The new sons won't burn out. End of story. Done. Move on. He walked away, shook his head. I walked away, shook my head and said, glad that's over. Romans 8 said, creation's groaning. When mountains let go of mud and entire little villages are wiped out and lives are entangled in the mess, creation groans. When tsunamis wipe out coastlines and hundreds of thousands of people are washed away, creation's groaning. But Paul didn't say that was a microcosm of this or this a microcosm of that. He said, and in the midst of that groaning creation on the shore of that tsunami, a mother who watched a baby torn away, she groans. And she groans until she doesn't even know what to pray, but she just groans. She groans in such a way that she defers it all to a higher power. And when she lays that groaning, like my friend laid their story in my lap the other day, there was no wise words. Thankfully, they needed me to do nothing but hold because I had nothing to say but groan. And Paul said, when we know not what to pray for as we ought, the Holy Spirit prays. Prayer is not something simply Scripture teaches that you do to God. Prayer is something you do with God. That's a much better view of prayer. The Holy Spirit groans. God prays with us. Someone said, well, what does God say when he prays? Paul said the Holy Spirit groans. Creation groans. We groan. God groans. And instead of one being a microcosm of the other, the three are a three-part harmony created in choir where we join with creation and we join with God, and we wait, we hope for the maturing of creation. And you wake up on mornings like this, and you read about mothers who've drowned their children because they heard voices, and you groan, and you throw the computer away, and you groan, and you listen as you press your ear against the universe, and the water groans. The workers who cleaned the streets in Boston over a year ago said that it was if, as they cleaned and broke those brick and bleached that mortar, that it was as if it was groaning and crying. God said, it's not just your brother who cried before he died, but he said, I heard his blood down in the soil of creation because out of the dust of the earth we were created and come to find out the dust of the earth is the dust of the stars. Stardust we are until we are all united with a creation that's groaning, longing for a world made right, singing that song in harmony with God. And here we are created from the dust of the earth. Here we are stardust infused by the essence of God. And it's no wonder that we look upward and outward. It's no longer that we gaze at the stars and you, you go to the planetarium and you look through the telescope and you just shudder, don't you? as the, the mind-boggling mathematics are explained to you about how many stars and how many millions and trillions and you find out what a light year is and then you find out you're not even outside of the galaxy and there are hundreds of billions of those. And then you find out that those hundreds of billions of galaxies are expanding at an ever-decreasing rate and you ask yourself, what are they expanding into? And you shudder. And the stardust buzzes inside of you, infused by God's presence. And then you sit, like I did a few days ago, knee to knee with a friend, brain cancer, tentacled down into his being. And you sit with him. And you look into his eyes. And sometimes the tentacle affects the left hand and sometimes it affects the tongue. Sometimes it affects the memory. There's clarity and then there's babbling. 
and you look into his eyes and eyes of the window of the soul and you see the stars twinkling and through those eyes he whispers help me and I pray for him to have peace for I know not what to pray for as I ought I pray for the cancer to go away for I know not what to pray for as I ought and God groans and in that moment of being there with him There's a connectedness to a world other than ours, knee to knee, soul to soul with a person. You realize, Lee, that that inward looking into his soul is no different than that upward looking into the stars. It's a longing. We look through telescopes and shudder. We lay our hearts bare in journals and memoirs and shudder. These tremors prophesy of a world that is to come whose seeds are already in us. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, my homeland, Augustine cried. C.S. Lewis said these awe-induced shudders that we feel in the presence of holiness, these awe-induced shudders, Lewis said they are the scent of a flower we have not found. They are the echo of a tune we have not fully heard. They are news from a country we have not yet visited, yet in some strange way in which we feel we were born. And back again we come, whether the telescope, the microscope, or the memoir, the therapeutic session, or the sunrise and the sunset, back again we come to the reality that this is a soul-making universe. This is a Christ-making life. And this, brothers and sisters, is not a simple process. This is what I want to say to you. This soul-making process to where Jesus will stand and say, I am not ashamed, William, to call them brothers and sisters. That's something else. That he will say, these are my brothers and sisters. <laughs> and the sons of God will clap their hands and time as we know it shall be no more. This is no simple process that we are in. There are currents and seasons, openings and closings, days and nights. There are ups and downs, prosperities and adversities. There are births and deaths, crucifixions and resurrections, and all are a vital part of the same process. And the gravitational pull of walking out of one room where a baby has been lost into another room where a baby is born rushing out of church and Easter egg hunts and singing children's choirs off to visitations of young ones taken out by drunk drivers. We spin and we tilt and we rotate. Our feet are scarcely held to the ground and yet we feel pressed by a million pounds to the same. We spin, we tilt, we rotate for what is around us is in us and we groan. A few weeks ago, Philip Yancey spoke to that when he spoke to us about the seasons of life and he stood right up there and he talked to you about how the seasons of life are like the seasons of the year, spring and summer and autumn and winter. And he told us that we have to embrace each season for what that season has to give. There are some things you'll get out of spring you'll never get out of autumn and there are some things you'll get out of winter. Though you want to get out of it, there are some things you'll get out of winter you'll never get out of summer. Yancey told us that we have to fully embrace each season. Another author that I love is Parker Palmer, and Palmer agrees with Yancey. Palmer says that the seasons of the year are apt, are apt examples, apt metaphors for our lives. Palmer, in his little book uh, that I've recommended to you before, it's one of the most influential books in my life, and it's a little bitty. It's called Let Your Life Speak. Palmer, an incredible Quaker Christian thinker. Palmer said that he noted in a study that societies that are chiefly agricultural tend to ask in terms of children. The children tend to ask in relationship to the idea of where babies come from. That's another good one with the kids. Where do babies come from? It, Palmer noted that in chiefly agricultural societies, children tend to ask, listen to this, how does a baby grow? While children from societies like ours that are driven by manufacturing, they don't ask how babies grow. They ask how are babies 
made. If we lived in an agricultural society, the season's metaphor would be a natural lens, but alas, more and more in our industrial narrative, we are talking less and less about growing things. We talk more and more about making things. We make time. We live in a linear world uninterrupted on one end of the machine we put in, on the other end of the production line we receive. And, and we do this with our spirituality. We make time. Something as precious as friends. We make friends. We make meaning. We make money. We make a living. We even try to make love. And last of all, we try to make lives. And, and I think probably altogether that's not a terrible metaphor, but I agree with Yancey and Palmer that the organic lens of seasons and earth are far superior. Seasons and cycles are an apt metaphor of how we navigate this world on our way to the kingdom of God. And in my life, I found that friends and love are grown a whole lot more than they're made. Marriages and babies are tended like gardens. They are not produced by machines. And I will give that livings and money may be made, but lives never are. Lives are grown. Lives are grown through tilling and preparing and watering and gestation. Life is seasonal. This is what I wanted to tell you today. Life is seasonal. And the church recognized this a long time ago when it created its calendar. The church realized that there are times of the year that we need to celebrate seasons of Advent, seasons of Christmas, seasons of Christmas tide, seasons of Epiphany, seasons of expectation, longing, and joy. But woven into those seasons were seasons of. Good Fridays and Lent, seasons that represent the autumn and winter seasons of our life, seasons, seasons that mitigate the shock for our children. Our adults take dry stems. Our adults know how to fashion electric chairs. Our adults know how to fashion sad deaths. But we mitigate the reality for our children and we mix in with our crosses, Easter egg hunts and Easter bunnies and we let our second graders make their electric chairs out of shiny paper and pastel colors. We recognize that Life comes in seasons because the glory fully revealed may not be sustainable. So little by little, we walk our people through seasons. We walk our children through seasons. Our children's directors, they don't just throw the Bible at our kids. We start with the stories and we ask ones which, which ones are appropriate for which age. The church recognized the season of Lent as a season of, a season of autumn and winter a season of beauty and horror, a mix of color and cool, beauty and decline, when leaves are never more exquisite just at the time that they are letting go and dying. Fall is a gentle precursor to the rigor of winter, the short days and the long nights, the barren landscapes, the empty trees, the church's calendar reminds us that some seasons are easier than others. That's why the voice of the community, the call to the community, listen, is to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. It is a strange admixture, this thing called the body of Christ. There are those who are living in spring and those who are living in summer. There are those just entering fall and there are those that are on the verge of exiting winter. Lent follows Advent. Christmas and Epiphany reminding us that Christ 
baptism was followed by his temptation. The voice of the father that said, you are my beloved, was followed by the voice of the adversary who said, if you are, prove it. This is not an easy season to embrace. That's why the color of the rug is black and the stage is not lit and the band is stripped down and the colors on the screen are black and white because not every season is spring. Yet, the calendar reminds us no season promises it will remain forever. What seasons do promise is that they are not in themselves the end. They have an end, but they are not the end. They are part of something eternal, continuing. This is what the seasons say. They are part of something that is larger than themselves, an ecology designed by a loving creator to sustain us while we grow. The calendar, the season of Lent especially, reminds us that every season of life has its hardness and its kindness. Every season begins and ends. And every season's beginning is birthed out of the end of another season. And every end of a season has within it, pregnant with inside, within the bounds and the pangs of its own pregnancy, the existence of the next season. I was thinking the other day about winter. The last couple of winters around here have been so mild that we just almost enjoyed spring all the way through, right? And this year we had a little tougher winter. But I was reminded my wife grew up in the Midwest in Iowa. I grew up on the other end of Missouri in Arkansas, and the winters that she describes are completely different than the winters I describe. Some of you are from the Midwest, right? Some of you, anybody from the upper Midwest? Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, where people talk funny? You know, where everybody, everything goes up at the end, you know? Sound like that Swedish guy on the Muppets, you know, sporking, borking, borking. Is that the way y'all sound? You came down here, Doug, and you found out the Queen's English, right? In the accent. Playing golf with some fellas the other day. One of them was from Canada. One of them was from Minnesota. And the other guy was from Sweden. I got to talking to them about winter. I used to preach up in Minnesota. I told them, and in Minnesota, for those that are from Minnesota, I used to do a little circle. I would go from uh, Winona over to Owatonna, Rochester, up to St. Paul, Cloquet, Duluth, over to Stillwater and back down. It was a little cycle. One year, those crazy people had me come in January and February. And I remember I had never felt anything like that in my life. There's hot, cold, and that. And that I had never felt. One night, it was wind chill, 42 below, 15 to 18 regular, but 42 below wind chill, and the snow was blowing sideways. And I asked the pastor, I said, are we having revival tonight? And he looked at me like, what? I said, are we having church tonight? He said, yeah, that you're, that's why you're here. I'm like, well, it's the Arctic tundra outside. And... And he said, well, sure we are. And that night I got to church, and no kidding, I, I look out as we get there, and there's this car that comes sliding three different ways, fishtails into a parking spot, and I'm like, that's incredible. That's an incredible driver. The door opens, and I see a cane get out, and a little 80-something-year-old <laughs> woman comes walking through the snow. and we cancel school at the potential of a light dusting. <laughs> and I asked the guys, this is all I want, I want to say to you, I asked the guys, I said, how do you live in a place like that? And everybody that I ever ask from the north, how do you live in a place like that? They always say the same thing. The only way to endure the winter is to embrace it. They always tell me something like this, it'll drive you absolutely crazy unless you learn to get out in it. Outward Bound, the therapeutic program, has a motto, and that motto is, if you can't get out of it, 
get into it. And the Lenten season is a season that every one of us want to get out of. You know how hard we are trying to get out of what this means? You know how hard my friend is laboring with the brain cancer? I mean, he just sold his company a few years ago for millions of dollars. It was time to enjoy life. Jeez. Do you know how hard we try to get out of it? But our bound says if you can't get out of it, you got to get into it. And my friends from the north say the only way that you'll survive it is you can't hunker down, you can't hole up, and you can't just maintain a pulse until the sun comes out. You got to embrace it. You got to practically get the clothes. You got to plan for it. You've got you got to take those snow drifts that snowed you in and you got to skate on them. You've got to roll them into a snowman. You've got to get into the very thing that intimidates you. And you've got to tell the story. You've got to tell it to yourself first. You've got to wrap your arms around it. You've got to get into it. And so it is with the winner of our soul. I don't know what season you're in. I don't know if your seasons are ending or beginning. I think about winters and the failures and the betrayals and the depression, the sickness, the bankruptcy, the divorce, the rejection, the stuff that just makes us want to hole up and hunker down and just maintain a pulse. The Lenten season is a season that sees the kingdom of God from the mountaintop and knows that there's a valley between. The season of Lent is the season that sees crosses and whipping posts and lots of stuff to groan about. The season of Lent is the season when even God living a human life stands on the mountaintop and even his own disciples won't go down into the valley. And in Gethsemane, he wrestles alone. And even he there prays, if there be any way I can get out of this and end up in that, please. But the season of Lent is the time when we are reminded between the springs there are other seasons. And there are lessons to be learned there, life to be done there. And we are called as people of resurrection to remember with our eyes fixed on an ultimate hope that we are not groaning for nothing, that we are not just living like we're dying. We are dying like we're living. And that's why, Steve, a bunch of guys want to gather together in their 55 years. You know why? Because men are realizing now, women are realizing now, life's not over. It's a new season. And there's lessons to be learned there, resurrection to be found there. That's why some of you are waking up on the other side of divorces and bankruptcies and you're saying, it didn't kill me, it didn't eat me, I didn't die. And you look down inside of your soul in the midst of all this stardust and the hand of God is making you into the image of his son. This is the season of Lent. This is the season, and I close, when we peer out the window at the snow drifts and we look at the temperature outside and we shudder and we say, I can't do it. And God comes with the muck-mucks and the coat and the toboggans and he says, you can't get out of it. Let's go play in the snow. There's life to be had there. Let's go build a snowman and we journey down, down, spiraling, twisting, rotating, and tilting in the gravitational vortex that promises, uh, promises to destroy us. And just at the moment of destruction, an angel rolls away the stone and the saddest story that ever was becomes the greatest story that was ever told. And that, Bill Green, is the gospel. 
And that's why we're here, and that's why we're journeying toward the cross. Can you say amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our great hope. Thank you for the seasons of life. Thank you for the courage to embrace the seasons, not run from them. Thank you for the courage to know that with you nothing is wasted and what's lost is nothing compared to what's found. Thank you, Lord, for the relationship that we have with you, one who lived and died and rose again. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of this gravitational pull created by all of these bodies swirling around us, thank you, Lord, that there is a centered place in you that we can rest, that we can find ourselves, that we can submit ourselves to the work of your hand. And for those of us that are still tangling with the gravitational resisting at every hand, Lord, may we learn to lean into it now, to do that counterintuitive thing of letting go that the water might hold us. Teach us the way of your kingdom, Lord, as we navigate these seasons called life. Teach us these things, warm us now, still us now, and steal us now for the journey ahead. Until that day, that the kingdom of God fully comes in me until that day that the kingdom comes in this world. May we journey faithfully. May your work continue in our soul. We pray all of this now, trusting our lives and all of their seasons, trusting them into your hand. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said a good and hearty. Amen. Amen. Now go in the power of God and live in the strength of the resurrection and be good to one another.